0: Welcome to episode number 14 and the second edition of High Performance Heritage. These are special episodes where we take a closer look at a car, truck, or person that embodies the high performance heritage of Mopar. On this installment, we pop the hood on what was considered in the late 70s the last American hot rod, the 1978 Dodge Little Red Express. We also have our normal weekly segments too, so get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. You're tuned in to the best Mopar enthusiast-driven podcast on planet Earth. And I am your host, Chris Albrecht, better known as the Mopar Hunter, and this is Talking Mopars. You're listening to Talking Mopars with the Mopar Hunter, your direct connection to all things Mopar. We are back with installment number two of High Performance Heritage which we will get to once we cover our weekly segments of Project Car of the Week, High Performance Parts, and Listener Stories. But before we get into all that, I want to talk about a very cool car that I saw on social media this past week. I was browsing through my feed when I saw that my buddy Johnny Mopar shared a picture of a ratty 69 Roadrunner setup for drag racing posted by True Street Productions. If you've listened to most of, if not all of these shows, then by now you know me, and you know that I love me some ratty Mopars. There was something about this Roadrunner that really piqued my interest, and I had to do some digging. I found out that the car has its own Facebook page, which you can find if you look up Project Tetanus 69 Roadrunner. Turns out this Roadrunner is owned by a guy named Ralph, and this bird does most of its dirty work on the streets. The car is a wild animal, period. That's all there is to it. I also learned that this thing has a Hemi in it. Now, I really wanted to know the story on this car, so I reached out to Ralph and spoke with him on the phone about coming on the podcast, and telling the story about the car, which he was open to. So I'm happy to announce him as a future guest on this show. And like all the guests I'm lining up, I am very excited to talk Mopars with him. And uh, speaking of which, to everyone out there listening that I've reached out to about being a guest on the show, the time has come, and I will be in touch with you to get you scheduled to be featured on the special editions of this show that I call Direct Connections. I want to be clear when I say that talking Mopars is for all Mopar enthusiasts. As such, I want to make sure that you understand that I want to be different from other shows by being inclusive to you, the listener. So I say again, if you have a Mopar story that you want to share with me, that I will share on this podcast, email them to me at chris at talkingmopars.com. The same goes for you if you want to be a guest on the show. Email me and let me know why you think you'd make a good guest because direct connections are coming soon and most of the people that are going to be coming on the show, I've actually reached out to myself, but I'm also open to suggestions. So if there's someone out there that you think I should talk to on the podcast, maybe you want to hear more of their story or more about their business or what have you, email me and I'll reach out to them and see if coming on the show is something they'd be interested in. So that's that. And back to Project Tetanus. This car is awesome. Like I said, it's set up for drag racing. It's caged up. It's got racing seats, no front bumper, no hood, Hemi on nitrous. This car is a straight-up Savage. And guess what? You can see it in action. There is a slew of street racing videos on YouTube by a production company called 660 Street. That's the number six. And then 60 Street spelled out. You can see Project Tetanus doing work on the video titled No Trailer Number Five. So if you go to YouTube and look up 660, 660 Street, uh, say that 10 times fast, and then you look up uh, no trailer number five, you'll find the videos. Now, you will see one that shows Project Tetanus, the 69 Roadrunner, um, on the cover photo with a Mustang. So, check out that video. Check it out, see, see the work it does. It's a really cool car, I really like it. I love ratty Mopars, because you can see that this car, you know, it's in derelict condition. I don't know the whole story on it but you know when I see a car like that I imagine that it was sitting somewhere and you know Ralph saw it, bought it and brought it back to life in a different way than your average restoration. He took this car and made it a monster which I respect and I can't wait to get the full story on the show cuz I really don't know the story of the car. I kind of Ralph and I had a brief conversation and I realized that he was full of stories, so I'm really excited to get him on the show. And I'm really excited to hear about this Roadrunner because, like I said, it piqued my interest and I needed to learn more. And the more I learn, the cooler it gets. So hopefully we can get him on the show really soon. I'm not sure when, but really soon I'll be reaching back out to him. But, you know, while I'm talking about this, if I ever mention a business person or anything really specific. I try to remember to put links in the show notes or show descriptions so that you can check it out for yourself. So if for some reason you hear something that I talk about on the show and you don't see links in the show description, contact me and I'll be sure to direct you to the right place or give you the links myself and I will add them to the notes section because sometimes I forget. You know, I try to give credit to where credit is due, but sometimes I miss it and I'll be going back to some of my previous episodes because I'm sure that I've missed some stuff there and I just want to make sure that everything is linked in the show notes. Anyways, I'm a fan of the street racing scene around the country, and I'll admit that I got sucked into the rabbit hole of YouTube street racing videos on more than one occasion, and doing research on Project Tetanus was no different. I had to see the car doing work on the street, and I spent quite a bit of time watching the videos. You know, you watch these street racing videos long enough, and you're going to end up finding yourself in the garage, tearing up that piece of cardboard with all your plans for your car on it. I'm telling you, you're going to be, you know, you're like, you know what, screw it, screw it. We're tubbing this thing. You know, we're back having it. (laughs) You know what I mean? When I see these street racing videos, I'm like, man, I need to do that. (laughs) You know, as I'm watching these cars pulling wheelies and losing it halfway down the track, I'm like, oh yeah, maybe I should try that. (laughs) You know, but street racing really is a talent. A lot of people think they can go out there and do it and You get some of these high-powered cars, and you can see how much skill it takes to keep these things on the road. And my hat is off to any of those guys who really have beast cars and have a hard time keeping them on the road. Um, I would like to get into racing. I have this dart, and although I want it to be a street car, I'm leaning towards making it, you know, a fun track car. Uh, I don't really know any street races going on around here. The cops are pretty strict, but I'm sure some of you guys up in Washington, you know, you. You have your finger on the underground pulse. So if you do, let me know. I'd like to go check them out sometime. But Project Tetanus is a really neat car, and I'm looking forward to speaking to the owner, Ralph. So, all right. Now that we're all warmed up, let's get this show on the road. Before we get into Project Car of the Week, I want to be sure that you guys know where you can see the cars that I pick on this segment. I choose Project Car of the Week based off of cars that I post on the Mopar Hunter Facebook page the week prior to the episode being released. So if you ever want to see the car chosen, just go to the Mopar Hunter page on Facebook and you should be able to find the link to the car on there. I'll try to remember to let you know moving forward what day and what time the car was posted so that it's easier to find. So now that that's out of the way, let's get into this week's Project Car of the Week. With over 50,000 people reached and over 11,000 engagements on Facebook, this week's Project Car of the Week was pretty easy to choose, and it is the 1970 Plymouth Cuda in Manahawk New Jersey that was posted at 9 a.m. on Friday, the 7th of February. This is one of those cars that is a high price at $55,000, but is a rare car that I believe to be worth the money if you bought it for a long-term investment, so... Let's, uh, let's get into it. Let's read the ad. 1970 V code Shaker, 446 pack four-speed, sublime saddle leather. 55,000 dollars, Manahawken. My 1970 V code numbers matching CUDA. This is a very rare car. most people I have spoke with told me it's most likely the only one made. Numbers matching: 444-speed, factory six-pack shaker, Lime light green, saddle leather interior. Car is a project, as you can see. Motor is dated 81569. Both top pad and Vin pad have the butterfly marks from the factory. Build date on car is 111569. I do have the gill rocker molding and the shaker. Only part I am missing is the six pack setup and the manifolds. I have headers for it. Car rolls and steers. Tires hold air. Clean title in my name. Has been off the road since the 1980s. The drivetrain motor and trans were stored inside along with the hood since the 80s. The hood has zero rust in it. It's in amazing shape. Grill has no cracks in it. Title, VIN tag, door tag, fender tag, broadcast sheet, motor, trans, all match. That's pretty much the end of the ad, but the seller does break down the fender tag and VIN, and I'm just going to go through a quick highlight of some of the cool features, so here we go. The VIN that he supplies does identify this car as a CUDA V-code car, so that's a plus. And then he goes into listing all the options and all that good stuff. So some of the stuff here, it's a long list. So if you find the ad, you can see the fender tag on there and he has the full breakdown. But some of the things that stood out to me were D21 on the fender tag. That's the four speed. It's a V code car, which is the 446 pack. Excuse me. The 446 barrel, since it's a Plymouth. Um... It's FJ5, which is limelight green, so that's cool. That's a high-impact color, which adds to the value. It has saddle tan interior. That's the T5 code on the fender tag, and that's actually a really rare interior color. I personally have never seen a sublime or limelight car with a saddle tan interior or tan interior. I've never seen that, so that's really cool. It also... It's a super track pack car, so it's got the 410 gear ratio with the Dana 60 and a Sure Grip. It's got rally gauges, it's got three-speed wipers, it's also got the C26 code, which is the overhead console, which is really cool, I think, and it's a bucket seat car, it's got hood pins, it's N96 code, so it's got the shaker hood, so that's legit. Um, the car is just really cool when you start breaking it all down and looking at all the options. I think this car is worth the time and money that you would have to invest to get this thing, you know, back in primo shape, fully restored. So it's a really cool car, and of course, at fifty-five thousand, for someone who is Mopar broke like me, there is a little bit of a sticker shock. But this car is a high-impact color. Shaker hood, V Code six barrel, four speed CUDA. It's got tan interior, the overhead console. I mean this car in my opinion has plenty of reasons why it should be restored. And you know me, I'm the I'm the guy who's always saying, you know, just get the car running and driving safely and then drive it until the wheels fall off. But this car definitely deserves a full restoration. Oh, and how can I forget the fact that the car has the fender tag, the broadcast sheet, and is numbers matching? You know, case closed. Someone needs to save this car, and unfortunately it won't be me, because I'm not Scrooge McDuck and I don't swim in gold coins, but someone out there has the cash, and I think this one is the one to get. Um, I'd like to find out if the seller's claim that this may be the only car like it in existence is true, because that's another reason to scoop this thing up. What a cool car. You would have to find some correct exhaust manifolds and the intake and carb setup, but in the grand scheme of things, you know, that's not too big of a deal when you consider the fact that anyone who can drop over $50,000 on a project car probably has the means to have all the parts hunted down and have the restoration done right. So that's the project car of the week, a 1970 FJ5 limelight 446 barrel shaker hood Cuda with tan interior and a Hurst pistol grip 4-speed. What a cool car. What do you guys think? You think that thing's worth $55,000? What would you pay for it? Me? Ah. Uh, 55,000 is a lot of money when I think about Okay, let's just pretend that I had the money. Would I try to make a deal? Of course I'd try to make a deal with the guy. I'd probably hit him at 25 or 30,000 <laughs> cuz I'm a cheapskate and see where he goes from there. But if he was firm at 55,000, I'd probably just pull out the wad of cash and hand it to him cuz this car done would be really really cool. I I'm still curious. You know, the seller says this may be the only one in existence, and I would really like to know if that's true. Does anybody out there know of any limelight CUDAS that are shaker cars with the six barrel and a tan interior? I really want to see other cars with these options, and if this is the only one in existence, then that, you know, in my mind it ups the price a little bit. So this car is definitely cool, definitely worth saving. And it's too bad that it wasn't in better shape to begin with. You know, if this thing was in running and driving condition, you know, and it was all complete for 55000 that would be a steal in my opinion. You know, even if it was ratty, you know, then I would say, okay, you know, maybe just get it running and driving. You know, all original, hey, you know, drive it until the wheels fall off or until you can afford to have it restored right. But, you know, how it sits right now, I think you're already at the point where you might as well just get it restored. You know what I mean? But you know who has $55,000 laying around? I sure don't. But if you do, I would go get this car. But I ask again, what do you guys think it's worth? Would you buy the car? Is it worth restoring? I want to know. So that's Project Car of the Week. Let's shift gears and head over to Tinseltown. Welcome to the second installment of High Performance Parts, the new weekly segment where we briefly shine the spotlight on a Mopar from TV or movie history. This week's High Performance Part belongs to a sleek and mysterious car that, in the late 80s, looked like something from the future. The movie was the 1986 sci-fi film called The Wraith. It starred Charlie Sheen as a teenage kid who was murdered by a gang and came back as a ghost driving a wicked-looking sports car to get revenge on those responsible for his death. Because, you know, the 80s. The car was a twin-turbocharged concept car known as the Dodge M4S Turbo Interceptor. M4S stood for Mid-Engine Four-Cylinder Sports Car. Powered by a 2.2-liter four-cylinder with a Cosworth 16-valve twin-cam cylinder head, being fed by twin intercooled Garrett T25 turbochargers, built to be the Dodge PPG Indy Series pace car for 1985 and '86. It was commissioned as well as paid for by PPG. Developed in 1984 by Chrysler and built by Specialized Vehicles Incorporated, with 400 horsepower and capable of a top speed of just under 195 miles an hour on a stock block, mind you. This car not only screamed 80s, but it screamed period. It reportedly got grace gas. Uh, uh, grace. It reportedly got Grace gas mileage. <laughs> it reportedly got great gas mileage too something like 27 miles to the gallon when driving Miss Daisy, and 30 when cruising on the highway, only dropping to 23 miles per gallon when exceeding speeds of 150 miles an hour. It really is a cool car if you think back to what was coming out in the 1980s. And although quite futuristic looking at the time, when looking at the car today, it just has 80s written all over it. And I dig it. (laughs) There is a lot of information on the web for this car. If you search Dodge M4S, Um, there's so much info that I'm actually even considering going into detail on the car in a future episode, because there's a lot of cool little things to learn about it. Um, if you haven't seen the car, be sure to check it out in the movie, The Wraith. And if you don't like cheesy eighties movies like me, just Google it. Um, it's a pretty neat car. It has a tilt front end, a tilt rear end, and it's got scissor doors like a Lamborghini. It has a very exotic eighties kit car look and feel to it. And it would have been interesting to see this as a kit car available to the public. But I tried to locate one, and they just don't seem to exist. It sounds like there was some rumblings about making them available in the past, but nothing ever came to fruition. I would like to see the, you know, okay, so let's pretend I get one of these. Okay, let's pretend that it's all built and all I need to do is put a motor in it. What What engine do I want to put in this car? I could go the supercharged Hemi route, but I want to keep it interesting. I want to keep it throwback style, and I would I would keep the turbo four-cylinder, and I would go with an SRT4 2.4-liter double-overhead cam turbocharged four-cylinder. I think that would be fun. Um, a lot of people are squeezing some serious power out of those turbo four-cylinders. Don't get it twisted, but that's what I would do. Um, that actually would be a really cool car. But anyways, that is high-performance parts for this week, the Dodge M4S Turbo Interceptor. Check it out. It's time once again for listener stories. And this first listener story is one about a Plymouth Duster sent in by Matthew Monroe. Here is his story. This is my 1971 Plymouth Duster base has the original 225 in it. My dad and stepbrother bought this car together when I was 15 and worked on it together until I was 16. They decided to try and sell it. I attempted to buy it then, but my mom told me, no, it's a muscle car. Fast forward 16 years. Stepbrother ended up keeping the car, but it ended up parked at his mom's house by a lake for around 11 years, never moving. I took my chance and shot him an offer while he was in town, and he took it. My wife and I went and picked it up and brought it home, washed it, changed the oil, poured some fresh gas in, knocked loose and shop backed out all the wasp nests, and fired it up and was able to drive it around the neighborhood. Fixed a few other things along the way, and I've taken this car hundreds of miles in a day for business meetings to shows and toy drives. The duster never fails to draw attention. Matthew Monroe Thanks for sending in your story, Matthew. I love that you managed to get the car after 16 years, and that you're now finally enjoying it. It sure beats letting it sit and rot down by a lake, you know. I really do enjoy stories where a Mopar is eventually saved because those types of stories give those of us who have kept tabs on Mopars in our own areas that just sit and rot a little bit of hope. Someday, you know, before hopefully these cars rot into the ground, the owners will finally let them go to people like us Mopar enthusiasts who will treat them as they should be treated, at least most of the time. Some of us will buy them and let them sit and rot. You know, out in the backyard, but you know some of us keep them in garages, and we'll get to them eventually, like me. <laughs> but stories like yours, Matthew, give those of us in the community some hope that someday that we can actually pry these cars out of the hands of people who don't have the time or money to bring them back to life. So I'm glad that you were able to do that with your duster, and I'm, sounds like you're going on some adventures with it. So that's really cool. Thanks for sending in your story. Our next listener story comes from Stephen Swaney. I hope I pronounced that right, buddy. Lord knows I have a tough last name myself, Albrecht, and I hate pronouncing other people's names wrong. So if I did, please let me know so I can correct myself. And that goes for anyone out there. If I read your story and I pronounce your name wrong, please correct me so I can get that corrected. Stephen is a lifelong Mopar enthusiast with an interest in the obscure Mopars, and this is his story. My Mopar story. I grew up in a Mopar family. Both my dad and grandpa were loyal Mopar buyers, even if they weren't die-hard car nuts. My grandfather had a 1974 Dodge Coronet for as long as I knew him, and my father's Mopars that I remember growing up included a 1964 Plymouth Fury 4-door, a 1976 Plymouth Fury 2-door, a 1978 Plymouth Fury 4-door ex-Calgary Police Service Cruiser, and a 1981 Plymouth Reliant wagon. The Reliant was only the third new car my dad had bought. His first was a 1964 Plymouth Fury convertible, and the one I loved to hear stories about in my youth. Growing up, I loved all old cars. There was an infamous incident in my family when at age three my dad sold our 1964 Pontiac. I was so upset that I cried and cried about it. But as I drew closer to legal driving age, I realized it was old Mopars that I was drawn to above the other makes. My first car was a 1970 Dodge Charger 500, purchased from a local wrecker. It was originally a 318 car, but had a 400 Big Block in it when I bought it for 1500 Canadian. Even though it was a bit of a basket case, with a half inch of Bondo covering the quarters, I can't imagine buying a running, driving Big Block 1970 Charger for 1500 today. As years went by, I upgraded my Mopar collection by buying a less of a basket case, 1969 Dodge Coronet 500 318 two-door hardtop, which became my daily driver while attending college. It was one of the most reliable cars I ever owned. My first 1969 Coronet led to another, an even nicer 1969 Dodge Coronet 500, 318 two-door hardtop. This second one was Y2 yellow black interior with black vinyl top. I was the second owner and this Mopar was nice enough for cruising and car show duties. I really missed this car, but life events intervened. My daily driver at this point was a 1980 Dodge Ram Charger SE. It was fully loaded with a 360 four-barrel. It even had a little plaque on the dash that said Renfrew Chrysler showroom vehicle. Unfortunately, it was not very good on gas and was starting to develop reliability issues. I needed to find a new daily driver. My criteria were it had to be a Mopar, it had to be interesting, and it had to get half-decent gas mileage. My search brought me to a 1987 Dodge Shelby Charger. This is the car that got me hooked on Shelby Dodge. Up until this point, I had only a vague knowledge about Shelby's relationship with Chrysler in the 1980s. It was through owning this car that I learned of the existence of the Whittier cars, real-deal Shelbys. They were never sold in Canada, so it wasn't until the advent of the internet that I heard the four letters GLHS. I was hooked. I wanted an 87 in a bad way. The search took a long time. See above life events. But I eventually ended up finding number 0075 on eBay. It was a California car with 70,000 miles and very original. I bought it in January of 2009 and still own it. It's numbers matching engine and even more surprising given the delicate nature of A525's transmission. This car is such a blast to drive, it's like a go-kart for the streets. The Shelby Dodge bug had bit me hard. I found some fellow enthusiasts and together we formed a Western Canada chapter of the Shelby Dodge Automobile Club. Through my SDAC connections, I became aware of a 1987 Shelby Lancer for sale in Oregon. Thus, Lancer number 176 was added to my collection. For this Shelby, my dad and I purchased one-way airfare to Portland and drove the 800 miles back to Calgary. This was a great bonding experience for my dad and I, and it will go down in history as one of my favorite memories. At this point in time, I think it should be said that I've come to the realization that I like the obscure, the underappreciated, the unknown. I like 318 LA engine cars. I liked Ram Chargers before they were cool, and I love 2.2 Turbos. After many years of living the Shelby Dodge life, I found myself getting the itch for something older again. I missed vent windows, cowl vents, and foot high beam dimmer switches. Like you, Chris. I find myself searching the classifieds. Well, in late summer of 2018, I first spotted a Kijiji ad for a 1965 Dodge Polara 880 convertible. It was a beautiful Heron blue metallic paint with black top and looked sharp. I tried to resist, but the ad kept calling me back. As Uncle Tony recently said in one of his YouTube videos, the right number of Mopars is one too many. So in the spring of 2019, I struck a deal and the Polara became mine. It's a Canadian car, so it is a little different than the U.S. Polara's. It's a 318 Poly, so my old nickname of 318 Steve applies again. As I've become familiar with the car and researched it, what I like the most is that it was a one-owner car up until recently. The original owner purchased it new in 1965 in my hometown of Calgary. He owned it until the day he passed away. The estate sold it at auction in spring 2018 to a car dealer in Edmonton, whom I purchased it from about a year later. In local circles, I've become known as the obscure Dodge guy, a reputation I take a lot of pride in. Sorry for the novel, but my Mopar story has been a very long and rewarding journey. Stephen Sweeney. Hey, Stephen, thanks for sending in your story. I imagine that there are a ton of Mopar enthusiasts out there, myself included, that wish their first car was a 1970 Dodge Charger. I could never imagine finding one running and driving for 1500 bucks either, man. I might pay 1600 just so that I could give the guy a $100 tip for the bargain, <laughs> you know? But... I'm also a fan of the Turbo Mopars, and I can't wait to get into the projects that my dad and I have sitting around. That should be a lot of fun. Um, I love that you made a special trip with your dad. That's cool. And I would like to do the same thing with my dad someday, go pick up a car. That just sounds like a cool bonding experience to me. And uh, I agree with, for the record, I agree with Uncle Tony 100%. The right number of Mopars is one too many. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. And for those of you who actually haven't heard the story now that I'm thinking about it, I got the blessing to use the name Talking Mopars from Uncle Tony, who was originally going to use it, but instead went all in on his YouTube channel called Uncle Tony's Garage. If you guys haven't seen that or heard of Uncle Tony, go look up Uncle Tony's Garage. His videos are great, and he's a funny guy. But he decided to do the YouTube channel and just go all in on that, which I respect, and he's doing great. So... Thanks for sending in your story, Stephen. I enjoyed sharing it, and I'd actually be proud of being the Obscure Dodge guy, too. So wear that badge with pride, my friend. That does it for this week's listener stories. If you want to hear your story shared on the show, send it to me, chris at talkingmopars.com. It doesn't matter if they are short, if they're long. Please don't make them too long. But please remember that the story is only going to be read as good as you can write it. So please make sure it'll be easy for me to read. And thanks to all who have submitted their stories. And if I haven't gotten to your story yet, don't worry, I will. I'm still working through the stack. It's time, folks. Let's close this show out with another installment of High Performance Heritage. Once 1973 came around, the muscle car era dominated by flashy paint and ground-shaking horsepower was basically just a memory of good times past. With the oil embargo of 1973 sending gas prices through the roof at nearly a 400% increase, the days of high performance were over. Compression ratios were lowered as the gas prices and insurance premiums soared. That is until 1978 when Dodge fired back at the struggling times with a little red truck that would make automotive history. That brings us to our featured vehicle for this edition of High Performance Heritage enter the 1978 Dodge Little Red Express. It was a bright canyon red pickup truck with clear-coated oak wood panels that dressed the sides of the utiline bed and tailgate. This thing also had two ridiculously chromed out giant stacks right behind the cab. And, you know, those things looked like they belonged on a semi-truck rather than a two-wheel drive pickup. But, the truck also had gold pinstriping and gold Little Red Express truck door logos and the words Little Red Truck in gold on the tailgate as well. It was clear that Dodge really wanted this truck to stand out in the crowd. And, well, they succeeded. Along with the giant chrome stacks, the truck was also adorned with 15-inch chrome 5-slot wheels, 15x7s in the front and 15x8s out back. Chrome front and rear bumpers, chrome side steps where the exhaust protruded from, a chrome-plated air cleaner, and chrome-plated valve covers. It was clear that Dodge wanted to send a message. A boisterous one at that. The fun didn't stop at the exterior either. The interior also had some pizzazz, such as the tough steering wheel, which was only available for the first part of 79, and one of my favorite seats of all time of all Mopars, the optional bucket seats in Little Red Express trucks, and other Dodge trucks as well. Those seats are really cool. I would love to get a set someday, but... I'm not quite sure where I sit on that with my 76D100. But anyways, back to the Little Red Express. Other than a few options, the truck was pretty loaded from the factory for a base price of 7400, which, at the time, was not a low price tag. But the real fun begins when you turn the key. But before we do that, we have to understand the importance of what you are starting. And to understand that, we have to know who was responsible for such an outlandish pickup truck at a time when performance was all but a distant memory. Enter Tom Hoover. Tom Hoover is remembered by many in the Mopar community as the father of the 426 Hemi. Tom was an engineer at Chrysler Corporation and was the main weapon in the fight against the government's emissions regulations that had killed performance. Tom had found a way to create a performance vehicle through a loophole in the EPA's rules. See, the rules for emissions didn't apply to trucks the same way that they did to cars. For example, if a light-duty truck weighed over 6,000 pounds, it did not need to have a catalytic converter. So with the help from Dick Maxwell and Dave Koffel, the Lil Red Express would receive the EH-1 360, which was a modified version of the high-performance E58 Police Coat 360. This special 360 was equipped with a 340 camshaft, E58 cylinder heads, and a four-barrel carburetor, which resulted in 225 net horsepower at 3,800 RPM and 295 pound-feet of torque at 3,200 RPM. Sent to the rear axle through a 727 transmission out to a Sure grip equipped rear with 355 gears that would allow you to burn off both raised white letter Goodyear LR6015s with ease. The little red truck turned a quarter mile in 15.71 seconds at 88 miles an hour. It also holds the 1978 car and driver title of fastest American made vehicle from 0 to 100 miles an hour beating the Corvette, Porsche 924, Trans Am, Saab Turbo, and a Thunderbird. The Little Red Express trucks were released in March of 1978, and only 2,188 were made, compared to the year following when 5,118 units were made. Though there were some changes made in styling and performance in the second year, which was also the final year of the Little Red Express, it was still a quick little truck, and I believe it to be one of the most recognizable trucks in Mopar history, and to be honest, one of my personal favorites. You know, right alongside the Ram SRT-10 and the other similar trucks Dodge produced during that time, which were, you know, the Midnight Express and the Warlock trucks. Those are awesome trucks all on their own. And all of those will also get their own episodes of High Performance Heritage because they're all that cool. So that's, that's pretty much the 1978 Dodge Little Red Express in a nutshell. And this has been High Performance Heritage. That does it for this week's episode of Talking Mopars High Performance Heritage. For more information about this podcast or to listen and subscribe to the show, please visit talkingmopars.com. That's the best and easiest way to help me spread the word about this podcast is to share the website and, you know, tell all your buddies about the show. Anybody who loves Mopars or wants to learn more, you know, you might not learn a whole lot on the show, but you're going to learn little bits and pieces every episode. And then hopefully You know, by episode 1,000, you might know 5% of what there is to know about Mopars. (laughs) But ratings and reviews are always nice, too. They help me keep this show moving forward and getting better. So I appreciate any ratings and reviews that you guys give. But before we shut this podcast down, I want to remind you guys that I still want to hear from you and share your stories on this podcast. So email your stories, questions, or feedback to me at Chris at TalkingMopars.com. And I really want to thank you if you've submitted a rating or a view to the show. That really helps me out. And right now I'm sitting at an average rating of 4.8 out of 5 stars and a solid 5-star rating on Apple Podcasts. So I think we're doing pretty good. I think this podcast is heading in the right direction. So thank you for lending me your ears to not only listen to the show, but also for taking the time out of your busy life to rate and review the show. It means a lot to me and I truly appreciate it. Thank you. Until we talk again, I am your host, Chris Albrecht, and that was Talking Mopars. Thank you for listening to Talking Mopars, your direct connection to all things Mopar. Until next time, remember, no Mopar left behind.